Good morning. Good to be with you for worship. Uh, before we get started, I'd like to give you a couple announcements that you can find on the back of your bulletin. First is that the youth are meeting tonight across the street at 7 o'clock for dinner and times of fellowship um, and some learning. Our summer Bible club for our kids ages 6th uh, grade down to about 3 has started last week and we're going to continue meeting this week. Uh, if you would like uh, your kids to be involved with that, we would love for them to join if they weren't able to make it. Um, so just sign up with the link that's in the bulletin so that we can have enough food and you can sign the health waiver that's on there. Decorating for Vacation Bible School is going to be June 21st through June 23rd. If you can help, just show up. Uh, we would love for you to help with that. Um, Christy McCown can answer any questions that you have. She'll be leading those efforts. And if you are going to be bringing your kids to VBS, you can sign up. Uh, the dates are in the bulletin, and information for that is also in your bulletin. Those are our announcements. Uh, God is welcoming you here to worship him this morning. Uh, would you take a few moments uh, to gather your hearts and minds to do that? Let's do that now. We come to worship because God is worthy and because we know his grace and we share it with each other. Our call to worship is found in Colossians chapter 3. Would you stand for our call to worship?
Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Three times this passage calls us to give thanks, including giving thanks with song. So let's thank our God and praise Him with song. Hymn number 101, Come Thou Almighty King. Let's sing together, 101. Our great Father in heaven, in your eternal wisdom and marvelous grace, you have ordained that your people would be brought to you in purity and holiness and righteousness and redemption, that we will, with our eyes, look upon your glory. And now, as we gather for worship, we long to get a taste of your goodness. We pray that you would use our singing, our prayers, our reading of the scriptures, our confessing our faith, our listening to your word, our whole of worship, and that you would please, by your Spirit's power and wonder, minister to our hearts the grace that we need, that you would lift the hearts of those who are burdened, that you would cause those who are rejoicing to bring their thanks to you with wisdom and humility. Father, that we could bring every part of our lives joined together by our common devotion to Jesus Christ, our common hope in his salvation, our common confession that he is Lord and that we are his. Father, we pray that you would lead us in worship by the power of your spirit and accomplish your purposes in your church. Mature us into faithful disciples who as disciples take the prayer you taught us to pray and pray it together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. In your bulletins, you'll find a way for us to confess our faith together. It's from the Heidelberg Catechism. And if you 
read in the Gospels, when Jesus begins his public ministry, he starts by saying this, the kingdom of God is at hand. And he tells the disciples that he gives them the keys to the kingdom, the key that unlocks the door and lets people in, or locks the door and keeps them out. And so, as we want to understand how to enter into the kingdom of heaven, this passage lets us, or this, this, these set of questions, let us describe what we understand God has given to us to enter into his kingdom. If you are a believer in Christ as your act of worship, would you confess your faith with the bold print? As I ask you the question in normal print, what are the keys of the kingdom of heaven? The preaching of the holy gospel and church discipline. By these two, the kingdom of heaven is open to believers and closed to unbelievers. How is the kingdom of heaven open and closed by the preaching of the gospel? According to the command of Christ, the kingdom of heaven is opened when it is proclaimed and publicly testified to each and every believer that God has really forgiven all their sins for the sake of Christ's merits, as often as they accept the promise of the gospel. The kingdom of heaven is closed when it is proclaimed and testified to all unbelievers and hypocrites that the wrath of God and eternal condemnation rests on them as long as they do not repent. According to this testimony of the gospel, God will judge both in this life and in the life to come. Amen. Please be seated. As we come to our time of prayer together, the confession questions often are humbling. And when we read about the keys of the kingdom and how the gospel being proclaimed is God's means of which he is opening and closing the kingdom, is, it's amazing. Um, God builds his church through repentance and faith. And God, through his spirit, is the one who grants us repentance, who gives us the power and ability to repent of our sin. And that is the essence of the church and of life with God, this repentance of sin. And so we'll take a few moments in silent prayer to go to God to confess our sin, to go in repentance and to ask God to forgive us uh, so that we can be part of his church and continue as part of his church. Um, the good news is, is that all those who come to God in faith and confessing their sin will receive complete forgiveness, total forgiveness through him. So as we go to God, confess your sins, tell our Heavenly Father, your needs, your hopes, your desires. He is listening. He wants to hear from you. He wants to respond to your needs, your requests, and to grant you forgiveness of all your sin so that you can live in this freedom, forgiveness. Let's go in prayer, and then after a few moments, I'll lead us in a corporate prayer. Let's pray together now. Dear God, we pray this morning, we come to you by faith in repentance. God, you are three in one, one in three. You are the God of our salvation. Our Heavenly Father, our blessed Son, eternal Spirit. We worship you and adore you this morning as one being, one essence, one God in three distinct persons. You've brought sinners into your knowledge and into your kingdom. And Father, you 
loved us and sent Jesus to redeem us. Jesus, you have loved us and assumed our nature, and you shed your own blood to wash away our sins, to produce righteousness, to cover our sinfulness and unworthiness. Holy Spirit, you have loved us and entered our heart by faith, and you have implanted eternal life. And you've revealed to us the glories of Jesus. And so we pray, three persons and one God, we bless you, we praise you for love that has been undeserved, that is so mighty to save the lost and to raise them to glory. Holy Spirit, you are willing to help us in our sicknesses, in our suffering, in our times of need. You are willing to show us our need, to give us words, to pray within us, and to strengthen us. You're more than willing to answer our prayers for others, and you're indeed waiting, longing to hear from us. So, God, we pray this morning in particular for Susan Gordon and Mrs. Grace, as they struggle and suffer, Lord, would you cause them to come to a fresh experience of your sustaining power and your beauty in the midst of pain? Lord, we thank you for a great first week at our summer Bible club, how uh, you have brought joy to many of the children who were able to attend. We pray that you would bless the families that are able to participate in this in ways that are seen and unseen. God, we pray as we are here for worship that you would speak mightily through your word that is heard, preached, sung, and read this morning. God, you are doing incredible things through faith and repentance, and we come to you in total dependence and reliance on you for these things. Cause us to be humble and humbled this morning as we receive everything from you by your grace. God, we thank you for this time to worship you and to pray together. And we ask that by your Spirit's power, you would sustain us this morning and into this week. We thank you for this time. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Our God in heaven, we thank you for all that you have given to us. We enjoy your many gifts. We enjoy how you have given us uh, blessing upon blessing. And even in our worst afflictions, you give us taste of your goodness. So we trust you. We want to return a portion of what you've given to us as an act of our faith that you're the one that provides. Also as an act of our worship that you're worthy of our things, of all of us, including our bodies. We pray that you would use this offering as you would use us for your service, for the honor of Christ, for the needs of mercy, that you would make your name great and that you would use us to do so. This would delight us and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we prepare for going to God's Word, would you turn to 629 in your hymnals? What a friend we have in Jesus. Let's sing together 629. Please be seated. <clears throat> to take your Bibles, turn to Psalm 34. Uh, this summer we're looking at different psalms. Uh, John Calvin called the Psalter an anatomy of the soul. It's a psalm for every occasion, for every feeling and emotion that wells up inside us, for every experience that we have, a way for us to learn to bring words to God. It's his way to say, this is how to come before me. And in Psalm 34, there's a particular occasion that uh, pr- provokes David to write the psalm. You can read about it in 1 Samuel, where David is fleeing Saul for the fear of his life, and uh, he ends up in Gath. Now, if you remember the name Gath, it's the city of the Philistines. It's the hometown of Goliath, and as David shows up in Gath carrying Goliath's sword, because he had defeated the giant, 
It may or may not be a warm welcome. And it isn't long before he overhears a conversation that says to him, it will not be a warm welcome. They're going to bring him before the king and uh, it's likely not to go well. So David devises a plan. He begins to drool into his beard and change his face and act like a person who has lost his mind. And so when he appears before the king, the king says, I have enough madmen to deal with. Get rid of this guy. And they just kind of turn him loose. And, you know, David uh, leaves town going, whew, escaped. And then he writes this psalm of praise to God for his deliverance. So uh, as uh, you, know, you can certainly imagine a component of what was going on in his mind is, God, could you make this work? Could you get me out of the situation where I have found myself and I don't see any real escape, you've got to help. And he writes this psalm, a psalm for when your prayers are answered. Before we read it, let's pray that God would answer our prayers and draw us near to him with his word. Father in heaven, would you bless the moments we spend in your word? Would you make powerful the reading of your scriptures? Give us words that can guide us, that can shape our hearts, that can lead us to Christ and lead us to faith when... Life is both good and when it is difficult. Give us the, the resources by your Spirit and according to your Word that we need to be faithful to you, delight in you, taste and see that you are good. Father, we pray, make your name great and open our minds and hearts. Fill us with your grace. Use your Word to do so, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 34 Starting in verse 1, this is God's word. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let's exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. The poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps among those who fear him, and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many good days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked. And those who hate righteousness will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is God's word. It's completely true and utterly trustworthy. Uh, a friend of mine on his emails has taglines, you know, so that they show up and it has some kind of quote underneath his signature. One of the quotes is from Tim Keller. Here's what it says. We need to remember that we are saved by grace when we fail. But we need to remember it much more when we succeed. Now, I thought that quote was really insightful, that Dr. Keller has noticed something that's particularly important for people who live in uh, an affluent and largely successful life and culture. We need, when we fail, to remember that we are saved by grace. When I have a temptation that overcomes me, when I give in to some temptation and sin, 
when I fail in my activities or uh, ambitions, I have to remember that it was by grace that I was saved, not by my performance, not by my achievements, that what brings me a sense of identity and value is not something I do, but something God has done. He initiated it. He brought it to pass. He sustains that grace. He brings it to its full fruition and ultimately till it is complete. And I am like Christ. This is God's work. It is by grace. And so my failures don't undo that, and I need to remember that. But it is perhaps more important when we succeed, when life is going well, when there are achievements that are being checked off the to-do list, when we're practicing some version of righteousness and religious life, when things seem to be going all in the right direction and things are quite good, we need to remember that salvation is by grace because success can be more dangerous. No, that's not right. Success is more dangerous than failure. Now, I'm going to tell you, even as I say that, I pray for your success. I pray that things go well with you. I pray for that for my children and for myself. I'm not asking you to court failure because, you know, that's easier. But success is dangerous. Jesus warned it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is because success makes us think I'm okay. When, when things are going smoothly, what I tend to do, what I think we often do is go, hey, this is all going well. I must be doing fine. And it actually creates distance from us and God. And that is the bigger problem. The more independent I become, the less healthy in my soul I am. And pain, affliction, disappointment, failure often drive me to Jesus. Success sometimes lets me walk away. David, as he is in the midst of a terrible situation, begins to pray, God, Will you use this scheme of mine to get me out? And it works. He's free. And he gets out away from the Philistines. The temptation would be to think, I'm okay now. And I'll call on you, God, when I need you again. But that is not how David responds. What he does is he says, I'm not even going to look at the answered prayer and the success first. I want to start with the God who answers prayer. Look what he does. I will bless the Lord at all times. Not just when the prayers are answered. All the time, I'm going to praise. His praise shall continuously be on my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. To boast in the Lord gets at the very heart of what David has in mind in Psalm 34. The boast that you do is going to reveal stuff that matters and is important to you. It's going to reveal where your joys ultimately lie, what you boast in. For instance, I uh, figured out a problem with you know, one of our cars and got it fixed. It was an air conditioning, which is a huge uh, success in my opinion. You know, air conditioning in the car in Mississippi in June, and it wasn't working, and now it is. Hallelujah, right? And so, you know, I'm like, hey, I fixed the air conditioning in my car. You know, I want to tell people because I, I, I enjoy air conditioning. We boast in what we enjoy. David says, my boast is in Yahweh, in this God. And now, note, he hasn't even dealt with the idea that he's gotten free from a dangerous spot. He's not talking about, my boast is in answered prayer. My boast is in the Lord who answers prayer. My boast is in this God. In all circumstances, I'm going to find a joy in him, not in the ways he answered my prayers. 
The, the next thing he does is say, well, how do you boast in the Lord and find your joy in him? Well, he tells you. Verse 3, oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let's exalt his name together. He tells a friend. He tells a friend, I, I want to go praise God. Will you come praise him with me? I want you to come join me because in doing this together, it kind of becomes more real. It becomes more substantial. What I keep private is something that can almost, I can take or leave. It's what I speak in public, what I tell a friend that now holds me accountable. So David tells his friends, let's go worship God together. Let's praise him. And not just for the circumstance, but, but for him. You see, for David, what he's driving you to see in this moment is that as much as the answered prayer was something he rejoiced in and delighted in, he didn't want to stop with the answered prayer. It wasn't just the changed circumstance. It was the God who he was seeing behind the changed circumstances. Let me try to draw that out. Think about things that we pray for. Father, I pray that you would provide in this financial difficulty for yourself or for another person. Or, or we pray because we know about our own health or the health of someone else that's failing, and we pray, God, give them relief and rescue and stamina and endurance. We pray for those things. We pray for this difficult set of circumstances to be brought into the, the light. I want to be able to move from hardship into peace, from turmoil to rest, from tribulation to happiness. This is, this is what we pray for. And what David says is, yeah, that's great. When God answers that prayer, but don't stop with the answered prayer. Go past it. Go past it because the answered prayer is somewhat incidental. I'm just going to sort of hint at what's coming in this psalm. In a few minutes, he says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. He talks about being brokenhearted, crushed in spirit. He is extraordinarily realistic. He is saying that sometimes God answers prayer and so we can be glad, but don't stop there because sometimes he doesn't. And if you have stopped at just answered prayer and not traced it all the way back to the God who has been good to you, then you will short circuit the impact of the answered prayer. You will make it something that, that becomes a weight to your soul. Let me give an, a, a, one example of this. Think of the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the one time we have a recorded prayer of Jesus that God does not answer. Is it because the Father didn't delight in the Son? Is it because he didn't intend to sustain Jesus and endure him? Is it because he wasn't going to deliver his own Son? It was because God leads us to answered prayer and rest from our afflictions and relief, and he also leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. And so David here, before he takes some comfort in his changed circumstances, he makes the changed circumstances to be the incidental component. Look past it. See beyond it. See the God who is behind it. Now, he does genuinely enjoy God's gifts. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. The smile wouldn't leave his face. I can't believe the danger I was in and God has gotten me out of it. I can hardly think about this except to smile and be glad and to say thanks to God. He ponders it all the more. This poor man, pointing to himself, cried, and the Lord heard him, saved him out of his troubles. The angel of the Lord 
encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. God is listening. Have you ever had that moment where you prayed for something and you noticed God was listening? All right, this is going to be petty. It's just what it is. This was when I was in college. I was on my way to class. I parked illegally because I was in a hurry. I wanted to get there on time. So I I parked in a closed parking space that was technically for people who are employed and not for students. And by technically, I mean it was for people who are employed and not for students. And I got out of my car, kind of hurried into the building, and I'm, I'm, you know, praying that I won't be late. And as I, I walk into the hallway, I hear the, the elevator door open as I'm entering the hallway. And I hop on it quickly, fourth floor, and just in time. Now, it was an unusual moment when I actually cared about being on time to class. And I had prayed for this surely minor thing in my life, and yet here was God in his providence timing all things for me. Uh, I don't think I got a ticket that day, but... That's sort of irrelevant. It was a small thing, but in the moment, I'm saying, this is God who's doing it. I'm recognizing. I'm taking an accounting of these, even the smallest good things in my life, these are from the hand of God. And I want you to see what David says to do when you've started taking an accounting of all these good things that God has given you. Everything that you enjoy Every little or big answered prayer, he says this in verse 7, or sorry, verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Savor it. Meditate on those good things that God has given you to enjoy. I hope that today you have a, 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 one of your favorite meals planned for lunch and you're eating with people that you like to be around. I hope that today some of you get a nap that you don't normally get and you can look at it and say, isn't God good to give me this? I hope that some of you have a conversation with an out-of-town friend or relative that you don't get to talk to often and you can say, look at what God has done for me this small thing that I really enjoy. I hope that on this day, you can spend a few moments remembering God has forgiven my sin. He has written my name in heaven. I have eternal life. That is a big thing. And it is yours today if you're trusting in Jesus. And he calls you not just to know it, but to savor it to enjoy the taste of God's goodness. Christianity is not a religion of asceticism where you're supposed to just feel bad. And, you know, I used, uh, you know God is not a God who says, you know, funds the first three letters of funeral. Be careful. God is one who says, look at what I've given you. Enjoy it. He actually invites you to enjoy his goodness. But, but to remember that the gifts he's given are from him so that you can look past the gifts and see him. And then he says this in verse 9. Fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Now, I don't know about you, but I read that promise and it feels like it's promising a little too much. Because I'm quite aware of people in in church history who were quite faithful, doing their best to honor God, believing that he was real, looking to be his servant. And they were tortured, beaten, arrested, mistreated, even starved. It says that lions... We'll lack food, but God's children won't lack anything. But it is almost like that's too much. There's a, 
a story that I heard of a, a, a British Christian who was in a World War II German POW camp. And the Germans certainly weren't treating their prisoners of war with a lot of nobility. It was a difficult environment where they were functionally starved. And I don't think this man actually ended up leaving the prison. I think that he died there. But his diary was found, and in it he describes that at night he would gather with the other prisoners and quote the scripture he could remember to them. And in his diary, his, you know, starving, gaunt body scribbling his last words, I am so full of the goodness of Christ. Now, when you hear that, you go, okay, I don't know if I would feel that way, but I want you to understand that what God did in that particular moment was he came near to this person who was suffering, lack, but he filled him with goodness. So full of the gods of God's goodness that even what he did lack seemed less, seemed insignificant to him. He could be starving, empty stomach, but full in his soul. This is the way of God to give you his goodness so much that what you lack begins to lose its importance. If your ultimate good, if your ultimate hope, if your ultimate joy is God, that's your boast, no matter what goes on around you, in the Philistine camp or being chased by Saul in the wilderness or in these circumstances in which you find yourself, you still have God who is encamped around you. Now, it feels like to me the good life that I want would be if God just sort of listened to the prayers and checked them off for me. God, fix this, change that, do these things. But David, even after he gets a prayer answered, turns your attention to, says, no, 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 the the really good life looks quite different. Here's what he says. Verse 11, Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man desires life, loves many days that he may see good. I hope all of you raise your hands. That sounds like what I want, life and to see good. He says this, if you would like that kind of life, keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The remarkable thing here is he says, if you want to be satisfied with life, it won't come from gaining your independence and living this perfect, harmonious life, what it's actually going to come from is submission. It's a willingness to give God your voice. I mean, that's what he turns to. If you want to see good, keep your tongue from evil. What you say about each other and to each other is this pathway toward this life of goodness. The Proverbs tells us that there's the power of life and death in the tongue. What you say is going to guide your life. The problem, of course, is our tongues are just about uncontrollable. I don't know, at least 80% of the trouble I've had in my life is because of something I've said. At least 80%. So that's when he tells you this, turn away from evil and do good. He anticipates that our orientation expressed in our words is toward evil. And he tells you, here's the response, turn. Christian, the path toward this enjoying God's goodness is repentance. This is the real secret of the Christian life. It isn't perfection. It isn't achievement. It isn't accomplishment. It is turning toward God again and again and again and Him receiving you again and again and again. 
It's coming to realize that what God has in mind for your faith and your life is not your own personal moral achievement, but you're walking with Him day in and day out. To look at Him and say, all right, there, there are definitely sins I need to deal with, but I can't do it on my own. If you'll hold my hand and go with me, I can face this. It's to say I won't be able to do this independently, but with you to learn submission and repentance is the pathway toward tasting God's goodness. And you need it because your circumstances will not always be the ones of answered prayer. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and His ears toward their cry. God expects you to cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. He's not going to listen to the ones who, who oppose Him. But to the ones who cry for help, verse 17, the Lord hears and delivers them. He is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. This psalm is extremely realistic. You may look at your changed circumstances when God answers a prayer and you go, man, God is good. What the psalmist is saying is when you are in trouble and crying, brokenhearted, crushed in spirit, God is near then. He is listening then. He is good to you then. Now, in what way is that good? It almost seems like that's sort of, maybe he's off busy doing something else, but it's because he delivers you. Not always by delivering you from the circumstance, the affliction, but delivering you in it. God is saying he will support and strengthen and make your faith last even when you are crushed in spirit. When it feels like you've got nothing left to hang on, your faith is on its last thread. What he is saying in this passage is that last thread will hold because it's not so important the thread but the God who weaves the material. It is the God who is saying, your faith is your experience of holding on to me but I'm holding on to you. And there will be no affliction so bad that it overcomes your faith. Look at this. Verse 21, affliction will slay the wicked. To those who don't trust in the Lord, all that affliction will do is make them angrier and more distant and it will lead to Spiritually, death. But to God's children, even affliction leads to leaning on Him, to knowing His salvation. He says this, He keeps all His bones, not one of them is broken. Again, it feels like a promise, too much. I mean, some of you have broken bones. And surely in church history, we've seen it even under persecution. John Wycliffe was exhumed so that they could burn his body, including his bones, into ash. God preserves his bones. It hardly makes that much sense to me until the New Testament applies it. And what it says is that when they came to Jesus on the cross, he was already dead, so they didn't break his bones. What they would do to a person on the cross is, is break the legs so they could no longer hold themselves up and they would suffocate quickly. When they got to Jesus, he was already dead. When it says that he, they won't break his bones, it's not saying he won't suffer. It's saying he had already died. This one who had joined you in all your afflictions, Jesus does not call you to go through affliction as if he has no idea. He himself endured every affliction, every weight of trauma, every hurt already and now, he says, I know how to sustain you in it. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. If you look to him, 
There is no condemnation. How you navigate these trials, how you bear this life, how hard you work or how much you fail. For the one who looks in faith to Christ, there's no condemnation. There's only refuge. There's only safety. There is only a godly strength that supports you when you feel at your weakest. Because Christ became weak for you. What do you do with answered prayer? Well, the psalmist says, look past the answered prayer because the circumstances are incidental. See God's goodness and expect Him to uphold you when you're crushed in spirit or when you've just escaped the Philistines. God is good to you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, for us, the, the greatest joy is that we will see you and our names are written in heaven. And we find in these hours and these days, few places where your grace is so beautiful, where your gifts are so great, we enjoy them and we're glad. We give you thanks. But we won't trust in our changed circumstances. We'll trust in your goodness that transcends our circumstances, that transcends our successes and our afflictions. And we will find our greatest joy in tasting and seeing that you're good, boasting in you. Father, we pray, help us bring our whole heart to you in Christ and in faith. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Take your hymnals and turn to hymn 628. Listen to this line that John Newton wrote. Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. Remember the greatness of your God to whom you pray, and let's stand and sing 628.
Lord gives His blessing and His strength to His people. Receive the blessing of God on the authority of His Word. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.